Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of the Manufacturing IT podcast. I'm joined today by Luke Small. Uh, Luke, welcome to the podcast. Daniel, thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited for our conversation today. Oh, my, my pleasure, Luke. And um, I was looking through your, your profile before we spoke, of course, and I was kind of curious to how to describe you for the podcast. Now, I'm going to call you a, a manufacturing digital transformation domain expert, but, uh, but how would you describe yourself, Luke? I think that's perfect. Yeah, I think I'm... <laughs> I'm, I'm, that's probably the best one I've heard so far. I'll, I'll, I'll take the compliment of being a, being a domain expert. Um, but yeah, for sure. I, I think, you know, I've really grown up in amongst and with industry 4.0. So I'm really focused now on digital transformation and what digital transformation means inside of industry 4.0. So I think, and you'll have to say it again, but I, I think you summed it up pretty well in your, uh, in your summary. <laughs> Oh, good stuff. So, so Luke, tell, tell us a little bit about your background then. You've worked for some pretty high-profile companies. So, so, yeah, give us a bit of a background overview. Yeah, so like I said, I've really grown up with Industry 4.0. So started my life in robotics, um, so retrofitting, being an engineer, retrofitting robotics. Think about the classic yellow uh, FANUC robot that you'd see in a car assembly plant, retrofitting those to existing industrial equipment. Started my career there. That got me into PLCs, got pretty hooked in automation, uh, moved from PLCs into SCADA, from SCADA to Historian, from Historian into MES. And that was sort of my technical career. I was always in a professional services role uh, and really built a name for myself inside of that stack, inside the S95 stack, as someone who could be parachuted into a project after it gone off the rails. <laughs> to get it back uh, back on the rails, I guess. Yeah. And um, somebody had the smart idea of, well, why do we keep sending Luke in after the fact? Why not send him in earlier in the sales cycle and let's scope these projects correctly? So we tested that approach in Europe. Um, I was still in Europe at the time. So I, I went from being a professional services sort of engineer, architect, project manager into a commercial role scoping projects, proposing projects, working with the sales team as early in the sales cycle as possible. And that really worked. That philosophy of let's stop fixing projects after they're broken. Let's yeah. scope correctly. Let's de-risk correctly. Let's work with the, the customers correctly as early as possible in the commercial process. Worked really well. So that's when I moved to the US, I was I was transferred from Europe to the US to bring that commercial model to the US and scale it out. Um, still very much in the MES world, so, so scoping big, complex, multi-million dollar MES projects across a range of industries from discrete and process. Um, and that worked really, really well. And th that model that we brought from Europe scaled really nicely in the US. We saw our win, win rate go up. We saw the amount of times we were going back in to fix projects after the fact go down. and then someone had the smart idea that, hey, what Luke is really doing is selling projects. This the, the way in which we're scoping, the way in which we're having conversations with customers early on about risk should translate very well into a professional services sales role. We didn't have professional services sellers at the time. And frankly, we were suffering a little bit on, yes, we were our, our win rate was up. We were doing better with this new approach. But the attach rate, how much services we were selling for every dollar of software was down. So I was, I was moved in to build out a professional services sales function for North America. 
um, again, now rather than scoping, but now selling large scale multi-million dollar MES projects across a range of industries across North America. Um, that brings me up to sort of the MES S95 round out of my career and puts me around about 2016 when the industrial internet kicks off and specifically Jeff Immelt when he's running GE at the time builds the GE digital business unit and creates the Predix brand, which is the brand that GE put on their industrial IoT platform. And I was really challenged with making the shift from being an S95 MES guy in a commercial leadership role to becoming an industrial IoT guy in a, in a commercial leadership role. Mm. So I had to really go back to basics sift through all the latest buzzwords that were coming out of the valley around <laughs> IoT and Industry yeah. 4.0 and all, all this stuff that was coming out, but really got to, to learn what was the difference between the S95 traditional MES stack and yeah. what the value proposition for industry or excuse me, the industrial IoT platforms were. Um, that ended me on a specialist sales team sponsored by Jeff Immel. So I got to work with him when he was running GE. And our job was to go to the market with a new message around the industrial internet, what GE was doing internally, look at what we're doing internally around the industrial internet, around industry 4.0, translate that into a value proposition for manufacturers and industrials outside the four walls of GE, and then leverage Jeff Immel's relationships to get ourselves introduced to this, the C-suite of these large industrial companies that would benefit from the GE uh, product. So my claim to fame when I made that shift from MES into industrial IoT was I brought on Intel as one of the first big logos onto GE's Predix platform. Oh, it's a really good overview there, Luke. And I guess it's a kind of beautiful background to work up for that kind of controls automation layer, really get a flavor for MES, but also develop those commercial skills. So I guess when you do have them conversations with executive C-suite, you really bring that credibility to the conversation straight away. Yeah, I think it's so important in our world mm. that if you're going to be in a leadership role, you need to be able to talk the shop floor and the top floor. I need yeah. to be able to communicate with both and join the dots because big change happens in both areas, right? You've got to bring the grassroots shop floor people along. You've got to speak their language. You've got to understand industrial automation and controls. You've got to understand manufacturing. You've got to understand manufacturing KPIs. But then you've got to make sense of that in context of what I call the seismic economic shift that's happening because of digital in the industrial space. Mm. And if you can do that and join those dots between the shop floor and the top floor, you can make great things happen. Yeah, and I guess that's the utopia, isn't it, for every commercial person being able to link the top floor and the shop floor. I like that. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think that's that's critically important, especially like I said, there's the seismic change that's happening at, at an economic level because mm -hmm. of digital technology is impacting industrials in ways they've never seen before. So you've got to be able to make sense of both. Yeah, no, agreed, Luke. And, and I guess I wanted to kind of understand you're now the um, founder of Chakra, your consultancy. Yeah. So, so tell us a little bit about Chakra. For sure. Yeah. So um there's probably a few people listening to your podcast. And when I say GE Digital or I say Predix, they probably wince a little bit because there's <laughs> been plenty written about the challenges that GE faced with the build out of its own 
digital transformation, the build out of its own digital business unit and the build out of its own industrial IoT platform. Um, so I would say that while a lot has been written about the, the negative side of it, there was a huge amount of positive that came out of learning around industrial IoT to be that early into the market and to be delivering, because ultimately the, the, the customers that we did sign up, or at least the customers that I signed up, we delivered to the promise that we set. So we mm. made this brand new fledgling technology work well for our customers. So I, I got to see the really the good, the bad, and the ugly of digital transformation done well and done poorly. And figured at the time, this is 2019, there was such a demand in the market. So many industrial companies are, and they're still trying to navigate the digital industrial transformation space mm. that I could take my experience of leading something very successful while at a very ch challenging or a challenged company that was challenged in their own journey, that, that those two worlds, the, the, the good and the bad of digital transformation was experience that I could use to help large industrials navigate through their own transformation. So that's what I'm doing now um, is helping companies in a range of industries really navigate their own transformations. And I guess that's a beautiful role when once you've seen some of the bad the nightmares and, and and seeing some of the positive stories, being able to kind of really forewarn and forearm manufacturers and some of the pitfalls that you've seen and where projects have have ultimately failed or, or fallen down at least. That's exactly right. I think that's that's the the value that I bring and try and bring with my firm. And so, which I know you said you've covered in the past a, a lot of different manufacturing verticals and such, but but what industries are you kind of specialized in now, Luke, or are you really open on that side of things? I'm pretty open. I've I've found a sweet spot in the discrete manufacturing space. Companies that make things primarily. Mm. Um, I remember somebody summed up manufacturing to me when you're trying to talk process or discrete. That you either make stuff or you make things or you put stuff in things. But they are the <laughs> they are the three types of manufacturers in the world. Yeah. Um, so not to get into process versus discrete, but ultimately I like to work with people that make things. And the, the reason is if you make a thing today and sell it for dollars today, and that's the transaction between you and your customer, digital gives you an opportunity to stop selling things for dollars and start moving to an as a service business model. And we've seen this successfully done with GE, with Rolls-Royce, with Caterpillar. Um, not that I not that I led those personally, but we've seen them in the industry mm. be done, right? Um, so my sweet spot is really teaching companies how to leverage industry 4.0 technologies, industrial IoT, AI, big data, et cetera, to change how they operate their business and move their shift their business model to be more up to date with the modern, again, seismic economic shift that's happening because of digital technology. Yeah, and I guess that's a really enjoyable part of your work i guess and, and have been able to educate these manufacturers who who know their business know their process but you can bring your domain digital domain knowledge to really boost their uh, bottom line exactly yeah and, and so the industries that you mentioned discrete is that because that's where your passion lies as you mentioned or are you finding those companies or companies in, in that domain more primed for transformation and maybe more adaptable for a digital transformation yeah, I think it's got to do a lot with the consumer relationship that exists. Yeah. And if we're talking these seismic economic shifts that have happened and 
where that's changed industry um, to the highest degree, it's really a, around very asset intensive businesses. So whether you make or sell or consume large scale assets, the likes of the, the infamous Uber or Airbnb, they proved the, the business model shift that happened that allowed you, if you're a platform-based business, no longer actually own the assets that you need to operate mm. and operate with a basically a borrowed set of assets. So that's where if we do process versus discrete, stuff versus things, things are more interesting to me. And mm. I think the the shift that's going to happen around a discrete market when it comes to who owns the thing in the supply chain when it's been used for manufacturing is a fascinating conversation. So does that make sense? It, it really does. And that's something that I'm really fascinated with as well. And, and as you mentioned, Airbnb, Uber, companies who really changed the paradigm on that model. I'm looking to see how these manufacturing companies now change it on their side. So what I keep hearing about and what I keep speaking to people about is how these manufacturers are shifting away from whether it's making things or, or whatever, but turning into data companies as well and being able to generate some profitability from the data they create um, during their process. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's huge for machine builders. That's yeah. If, if we look at the things world and we double click again on where am I really focused, it is a, a lot of my clients and some of my anchor clients that have made Chakra a success have been very focused around machine builders and what's the shift that needs to change, whether they're going to monetize, to your point, the data stream coming off their machine, uh, which can be step one in the journey, or ultimately, and we did this with a large European OEM, shift a whole business unit from selling equipment to selling equipment as a service. Hmm. Um, that's that's, that's a really shift. interesting one. Yeah, yeah, equipment as a service and maintenance as a service as well. They're, they're kind of things that I'm seeing a bit of in the market as well. That's great. Yeah, and, and that's we built a very nice maturity model that if, if you're going to move to as a service, to your point, where you need to start with that is your service division. So <laughs> you can actually start with taking a walk in your customer's shoes from day one. So start with maintenance as a service or yeah. it's almost, excuse the, I don't know if it's a pun, but it's almost service as a service, but yeah. moving to things like SLAs, guaranteed uptime, uh, fixed price contract models, all these things that just put you one foot in your customer's shoes. Yes. So you can really understand what it's like to consume your own service division. And once you've learned and had to deliver to these SLAs, then you're primed and you've got the processes and optimization in place that you can start to shift your business model and move equipment over to the as a service model, which is a, a big, big ask for a lot of these companies. No, definitely. And I wanted to ask, obviously, you mentioned some great success with some of your anchor clients, and, and that's great to hear. But how are you seeing the market towards digital and, and transformational projects in the kind of pre-pandemic and now the kind of post-pandemic it was well, hopefully post-pandemic era? Are you seeing kind of a different mindset amongst the manufacturers? Yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. I left GE with a passion project, a passion mantra that digitalization is not digital transformation. And I really wanted to focus on the seismic, again, economic level shift that's happening uh, to industrials. It's not happening with them, it's happening to them. Mm. Uh, that requires them to transform how they operate as a business. 
Yeah. And that to me should change how you exchange value up and down the supply chain. If you're not playing with those value exchange models, to me, you're not really transforming. So that was that was my hypothesis. I was hoping the market would get there. We had some really good early signal from a lot of the clients that we talked to early on and some of the clients that signed up early on that yes, indeed, transformation with a capital T needs to be around that value exchange shift. What COVID did was allow, is probably a mean word, but allow CIOs, CDOs, roll out Teams, roll out Zoom, and call a transformation. <laughs> right? And I think it put us back a few years. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. Some, someone pinged me on this uh, on, on a previous interview, and I think they were right, that while rolling out Zoom or Teams, you can't call it good for transformation, work from home in terms of what needed to happen in industry for us to operate and continue to operate and across verticals, not just manufacturing, that was in itself transformative. That was, there was a workforce transformation that happened. Yes. My only point is coming out of the pandemic, yes, there's still a lot of discussion around hybrid versus remote versus on-site. Very difficult to be hybrid or remote if you're actually hands-on spanners making things so yeah. we got to acknowledge that but i think there's still so much work there's almost a backlog of work to do to get us back to why did we start this whole digital transformation initiative in 2016 what was the history of digital transformation why were industrials at the time ge being at the forefront so passionate and hell-bent on transforming and because those seismic drivers haven't changed yeah. And I think we've gotten a little bit lost between COVID and supply chain issues where yeah. we're scrambling to still respond to those. So I'm looking forward to sort of a post-pandemic post <laughs> world yeah. where we get back to, to big transformation with a capital T and we're not just focused on digitization. Yeah, and I guess that's going to be the real key point over the next kind of six to 18 months, really, how how the world plays out with this, you know, post post pandemic and, and whether we kind of really drop into recession. And it's uh, the doom doomsday scenario that everyone seems to be talking about in the media. And we can kind of get back to some more homeostasis in the in the work. Yeah, and, and that's that's really work that I need to do on, on or spend some thinking cycles on is what does happen to the next, the post-post-pandemic world, if we do indeed kick into a recession. And mm. what does it mean to manufacturers? And to, to me, I would hope digital transformation with a capital T is more important than ever. Yes. And I think what a recession will show up is the companies that, going back as far as 2016, placed the correct bets are going to survive and thrive. And the companies that, did digitization and call a transformation are going to be sort of left with no shorts on when the tide goes out. Yeah, no, I, li I like that, Luke. And so one of the questions I was kind of keen to, to ask yourself and obviously business founder and you having to speak to, to kind of many manufacturers and different people within those businesses. How do you, I guess this is a, a little bit of a crass term, I guess, weed out the tire kickers and the companies that are not primed, not ready, not mature enough to transform or digitalize. How are you kind of, finding that process of, of weeding the ones out that are, are not ready or tire kickers. Yeah, it's, it's a great point. Um, normally you can tell that the, the one leading indicator I find is that 
companies are on their second or third CDO. <laughs> if, if you're still on your first CDO, often the mistake companies make with their first CDO, and apologies to any first-time CDOs out there, I'm sure. <laughs> if they're smart enough to listen to your podcast, they're smart enough to do this correctly first time. But often, first-time CDOs are very technology-driven, and they've yeah. got, they've read the latest white papers, they've they really understand the technology landscape, they're looking at the consumer space, and they're trying to adopt that technology in the industrial space and they don't spend frankly enough time with operations by the time large industrial companies get to their second or third cdo they're often coming much more from an operations background okay. so if i if i meet with these manufacturing companies and i meet with their cdo i'm really looking for are they coming with dirt under their fingernails from the <laughs> operation side of the house and they really understand what needs to change on how they operate the business with a digital ilk yes. versus I'm going to come with a laundry list of new technology and push that on the business. And then as if by magic, we are digitally transformed because now we use the same cool technology that the consumer space uses. I, I really, really like that. So 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 what I'm hearing, Luke, is somebody who's got those dirty fingernails, who understands the operational challenges, who really understands that manufacturing challenge. They're the ones that will make the best CDOs, in in, in your opinion. I, th I think that's that's exactly right. And I, and yeah. I think we don't even I need to get up on the CDO title. These are, yes. I'm looking to meet the, the person who's in charge of transformation. So, for example, the person who was in charge of the large-scale transformation that happened with the European OEM that was one of our anchor clients, they came from operations and they got it from an operations perspective. So that was a no-brainer for me to spend time with them and really understand their journey because I was sitting across from, they didn't have the CDO title, but they were ultimately responsible for the digital transformation of that firm. Mm -hmm. They had that dirt with their fingernails and I, I kind of knew you got, you're going to get it from a, a industrial transformation perspective. Yeah, no, just on a side point there, Luke, I mean, we, we, say, we say CDO, but is there any other funky titles that you've encountered and, and you're on your travels for people doing essentially this job, but, but you know how job titles can vary? Any, any funky ones? Yeah, I've seen there's a lot of digital transformation titles out there, and it, they seem to range from VP down to manager. Mm. A, a lot of digital transformation people I've met are really the existing industrial automation and controls people in manufacturing who've been rebranded as digital transformation <laughs> yeah. and are very focused on digitization. Yeah. Um, that was one of the things that attracted me to this, our anchor client at the time, they had a head of digital and they had a head, or they had, sorry, excuse me, they had a head of transformation. They also had reporting to that person, a head of digitalization. Okay. So, so that person owned MES, SCADA, historian they they owned teams from a manufacturing perspective and they were really focused on deploying and getting adopted the most relevant technology that was available but they separated that from the transformation perspective um i, I think that makes a lot of sense doesn't it oh yeah yeah because that, that's i struggle a lot when i when i go meet people or look at people's titles and they've got transformation in their title hmm. but they're reporting into an IT manager or CIO <laughs> and, yeah. and I really isn't that not saying I've, I've nothing against CIOs leading transformation. I, I think yeah, that's yeah. very doable. 
I'm always just cautious on, are you really focused on the transformation with a capital T or are you still focused on adopting technology as quickly as possible, which is a, a critical part of this story. Yeah, yeah. It's not the, the, the capital T transformation part. No, and I, I think, you know, I, my, my question was about, you know, weeding out the tire kickers, so to speak. So, yeah, your, your points totally make sense, Luke. It, it's not a negative against the, the information and the IT side. It's really kind of combining those companies who are primed for that capital T transformation. That makes sense. So one question I wanted to ask you, and, and we're having a great conversation, so I'm conscious of the time, Luke. Um, but one thing I like to ask all the guests that come on the podcast, and this is maybe about, you know, sharing insights, sharing knowledge as such. But what is the kind of number one challenge you are seeing manufacturers having at the moment? I know there's supply chain issues, but if we kind of park supply chain issues to one side for a moment, what's the kind of number one challenge that, that you're seeing manufacturers have or, or what's the kind of word on the street that, that you're kind of seeing and hearing? Yeah, I, I think the number one challenge. So, so we have a maturity curve that we use to help customers understand where they are in a journey. And it it's a, a line or a, a genealogy between digitization and digital transformation. But we very intentionally have a very large chasm between digitization and the next step on the journey towards transformation. Yeah, And I, I think the biggest challenge that manufacturers are going to face, especially with you know, what can often be a self-fulfilling prophecy around a recession when people start to back off with the latest headlines on investments, I think people are going to find themselves in this digitization chasm where they've rebranded everything as transformation. But what they've really done is, is a very high degree of digitization. And mm. when the economic tide goes out, again, I think they're going to get left with no shorts on, unfortunately. And I, I think the advice I would give to industrials and manufacturers now is take a really hard, close look at the strategy that you have now next and future from a future proof in your business model perspective in with economic headwinds or economic tides going out and then compare that with the transformation you're expecting from your so-called digital transformation team hmm. and i think the the biggest challenge customers are going to face or or manufacturers are going to face would be the the potential chasm between those two worlds and it's going to become very evident with a potentially looming recession yeah, no, I, I really like that. And I think that's a different answer to what I've I've received from other people, Luke. So great to get your your take on that. So, so thanks for sharing your thoughts there on that one. Um curious to ask you on what you, you know, I threw a, a question out on LinkedIn uh, a couple of weeks ago, and that was around the kind of future of MES. And, you know, I had I think it was a, a few different options. We're talking, you know, the low code, low code platforms. We're talking about kind of maybe an IoT type solution, industrial IoT type solution. Obviously, you've had a foot in both camps. So really curious, you know, this is maybe a bit of a flippant question, but but what do you see as kind of the future for, for MES, given your kind of exposure with, with GE and industrial IoT? Yeah, I think there are, there are some thought leaders out there that are getting very much behind the low-code, no-code approach. And I think there are some thought leaders out there that are getting very behind the industrial IoT approach, which to me is a, a much skinnier way to go after certain MES value. Mm. From knowing how long it takes to implement MES and how entrenched MES is across the industrial sector, especially with large-scale players, I don't expect MES to be going anywhere soon, hmm. right? People are still buying it. 
the big players are still heavily investing in it. I do see some complementary approaches. We did it at, at Intel where we complemented our S95 stack with a leaner, meaner approach using industrial IoT. Uh, I think that's going to be pretty interesting. So I, I would definitely keep one eye on who are the industrial IoT players that are now starting to call themselves MES players and that have yeah. honed their stack far enough that they can focus very much on the business use cases and less on the, hey, we've got new shiny tech. Um, and likewise, I, I think the low code, no code um, approach has a lot of promise with the big warning that, and I'm working with a client currently on their own low code, no code, go to market. They've low code, no code does not replace software engineering. Okay. You can replace software engineers, but how you build the workflows, how you <laughs> think about stuff, right? You yeah. can you can still end up with a spaghetti diagram of a code system just because you could it's, it's even you've even got a higher risk of ending up with a spaghetti diagram of a of a code base for your MES. So I think low code, no code, lots of promise. I think there's some great vendors out there that are doing interesting stuff. They're getting a lot of press, they're getting a lot of success. But anything that's low code, no code, you've you've got to still engineer it correctly. You've still got to do correct requirements capture, understand how to best architect, and then mix it in. And then I think in the future, we'll start to see those two worlds merge. I think the S95 stack will start to just integrate in some of these additional areas, and you'll get some sort of a hybrid stack that leverages existing S95 type thinking plus industry 4.0 type technology plus things like low code, no code. Yeah, no, I, I really like that, Luke. And, and again, really good thoughts on that. So I appreciate that. Um, getting towards the end of the podcast, and, and one of the things I wanted to ask you, and what I'm seeing is is not so much a talent shortage, but a skill shortage. And, and really, you know, so my world is focused on the MES recruitment side and, and we're always looking for talent for our clients and such. And one of the big things that a lot of companies are really struggling with is people understanding that shop floor manufacturing experience. Now, you, you obviously started your career, you mentioned robotics and, and PLCs, but how are we going to inspire the next generation to look at manufacturing as a viable career path? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of interest in commercial IT positions, of course, but how are we getting the next generation to look at manufacturing as a, as a, a real career for them to, to go into to get this vital experience? Yeah, I don't know if you remember when GE Digital was being born, they released a set of advertisements on television with, I think it was Owen, the engineer, and he, he goes home and his parents don't really understand what he's doing. And he says, oh, no, I'm, I'm working with GE. And he's going to be that, that classic millennial type character who okay. was going to go work in the valley but <laughs> ended up working in a large industrial and everyone thought oh that's kind of boring and not, and not cool but his point was and our point with the advertisements was the, the way in which we now operate manufacturing companies or probably more to the point the way we should operate manufacturing companies requires a lot more modern technology than we're currently using and i i think there are um thought leaders out there that are promoting the technology that lets us run or could let us run manufacturing companies. Mm. And I think showcasing more of that technology, letting people understand that whether you're coding the latest app for an iPhone or where you're coding that latest app for an iPhone for could be the consumer space. And that's 
kind of cool and sexy, or it could be the manufacturing space. And that's just mm. as cool and just as flashy or it can be. But I yes. think we need a better job addressing the sort of dark, dirty, dangerous, the 3Ds of manufacturing to let people know there is cooler technology being adopted. And for me, and this is what always drove me to manufacturing, like to show how it's made. Yes. I just love <laughs> watching machinery like that manufacture things that we consume every day. Yeah. And I think if if you're listening to this podcast and you're trying to figure out your next steps and you're in the software space, find in your local town what manufacturing plants offer tours. They Most of them do to the public. And go take a tour of manufacturing plant and just see what actually happens when it comes to making all the stuff we make. Like if you think about just even the speed at which a bottle moves down a, a beer manufacturing line mm. in, in some of these large scale brewing industries, just seeing that in real life can be an aha moment for people to realize, oh, this is actually pretty cool stuff. Yeah, and, and I really like that and, and kind of giving the advice for taking the tour. I, I think one of the clips I saw on YouTube was the, the packaging facility in, in an Amazon warehouse. And of course, you know, not nothing being manufactured, but in how these things are packaged into the right boxes, the right sizes and all of that stuff. It's it's just fascinating seeing these things on the belts and, and kind of working through the process. Oh, yeah. And that, any any of the Amazon distribution centers, those videos are mind blowing. What, what yeah. they're able to do, even just challenging the the paradigm of how you store things you don't have to actually store them all together you can store them all separately the ikea model yeah right yeah. once you just know where it is it doesn't really matter how it's stored or where it's stored it, it'll, mm. it'll arrive at the right place at the right time it's it's yeah. fascinating stuff no look well look i think that's the end of the podcast episode it's been a really great episode and, and i think you've been a fantastic guest and i've definitely learned some stuff luke so really appreciate your time thanks for joining me thanks daniel that was great fun i really appreciated the conversation my pleasure, Luke. Speak soon. Talk to you soon.